Well, it has been, it's been a pleasure to be with you guys over the last uh, four weeks. When I, I don't often get to speak this much. So um, at Royal City, uh, Kevin and I, we typically go back and forth. So he's one of the other pastors there, and we share the, the brunt, of, brunt of this, uh, this load. And so doing four in a row is, uh, it's been a while. So, it's, but it's been good. So, uh, thanks for uh, the opportunity. I know for myself, I found the ability, like the time, just to dive in and uh, reread these parables again, both enlightening and challenging for myself. And I've really appreciated the time that you guys have given me to uh, to study and then to share. And this morning, we're going to look at the parable of the bags of gold, and you might know it as the parable of the talents. Okay. Um, it's fairly well known, and it's, we talk about it, but we don't often dive in and teach about it, all right? I, I think that's because when we read it, there's, there's a kind of a straightforward reading that lines up with our Western Protestant work ethic. Like, we read it, and we're just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, um, right? And it, it's impacted even our language. Like, the word talent it means a sum of money in its original language, but because of the way we've actually interpreted this parable, it has come to mean a gift or ability in the English language. Like, that's the etymology of, of the word talent. It's from scripture, which is kind of fun. Um, but whenever we read scripture and we find ourselves going, yes, 100% of me agrees with that. There's nothing stirring. Like, right? There's nothing that it says, wait. Um, and you, pause. I think it's, it's worthwhile. Not that you don't you have to find something you disagree with, but this reality is when we read this, we read it and we agree with it from, like, Western capitalistic, and it makes sense in that realm. But Jesus was neither of these things, okay? So it's important, to, I think, to look at the context, as always. How Matthew has placed it in the gospel is, is telling, and it helps us interpret it, right? It's preceded by the parable of the ten virgins, and it's succeeded by the parable of the sheep and the goats, and all of which these three parables, and actually another one, kind of are in the scene with chapter 24, where Jesus is expounding to his disciples about his return. They're leaving the temple, they're leaving Jerusalem, and as they walk, Jesus talks to them, and he tells them about the coming destruction of the temple. He, he prophesies about it and says that one day, this too will fall. And then he tells them that the, the day and the hour of his return are unknown, and that we should live in a, a kind of preparedness for the time when Jesus will come back. And Jesus illustrates this by telling them the parable of the faithful and the unfaithful servant. And it's at that point that Jesus launches into the parable of the ten virgins, which, because we're not going there this morning, I'll oversimplify it, and also kind of illustrates this unknown timeline of Jesus' return. But one of the things that I think is key and telling about it is it starts with this line, the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay, and it's important to note this because the parable of the bags of gold starts with the line, again, it will be like. 
again, what will it be like? If you read it independently, you don't necessarily tie it to the kingdom of heaven. But I think it is. This is a parable that is telling us what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And as we, as we consider this parable, really any parable about the kingdom of heaven, but this one specifically today, it's important to remember that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is both a now and a not yet. It's something in the future, right? This is the promise of heaven. This is something that will come, but it's actually a present reality that we're invited to live in in this moment. Jesus said over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is here, right? It's not only in the future. And so with that in mind, when you're thinking about this as a kingdom of heaven parable, and you're specifically thinking about this now and not yet element, I want to read it again to you this morning. So we're reading from Matthew 25, starting at verse 24, and I'll be reading from the NIV. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusts his wealth to them. To one he gives five bags of gold, to another two, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two bags also gained two more. But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put your money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even when they have, even what they have will be taken away from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this, uh, it, this parable, it's familiar to a lot of us who grew up in the church, right? 
as I said, to our produ productivity and profit-obsessed culture, the master seems almost justified in his, his anger and his, his anger at the servant who didn't produce even the smallest amount of interest, right? Wicked and lazy seems appropriate. And it, it's hard for church leaders, I'll be honest with you, it's hard for us to pass up an opportunity to preach about stewardship, right? We, we love to tell the church to, to use their gifts. And the organized churches, churches like, like Grace, like Royal City Mission, where I'm from, we, we actually require people to participate as good stewards, right? We need people to offer up their time, their abilities, their money for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of each other. That's, that's part of what this is. Um, and especially at a time like this, when we're coming through COVID and church attendance is down across the board, like almost every church is down a bit, and financial support has taken quite a hit, and vol volunteerism is down, you know, 60 to 70% on average across churches. It's hard for me not to read this parable as a stewardship parable. I'd love to tell you all to get off your butts and start giving and volunteering more, because if you don't, the organized church, which is so central to most of our faith, will die. It'd be fun to t call people out of their selfishness. But alas, not this morning. Because on the surface, it sounds like the master, or God, as it often is read, is telling his servants or us to make good use of the bags of gold we've been given. Yet I think when we dig past the surface, there, there just might be something else going on here. I think when you look at the, the third servant, it's a tell. His approach to the master is highly problematic. Okay? So he says to the master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. Here is what belongs to you. The third servant doesn't think very much of the master. Kind of accuses him of being a bit of a thief. Not a very loving or good person. And Jesus made it clear, right, that God is good. He said actually to the one man, actually only God can truly be called good. That's, he's like the definition of good. And the author of 1 John actually says that God is love, love incarnate. And so when you look at this, this servant who doesn't see the master as good or loving or self-sacrificing, we have a problem, right? The, the, the master doesn't appear to be very Christ-like. And if we read the parable if, as if we were reading this about stewardship... We have to take the third servant at his word. You kind of have to buy that line that he thinks. You have to think that God is hard and reaps where he has not sown. You have to kind of swallow the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker. 
And you might be thinking this, of course, it's an easy solve, God. The Father is full of wrath, but Jesus is loving. Just separate the Father, Son, Holy Spirit into three entirely different entities, different gods, and then we're fine. But without going into like a whole theological rant about the Trinity, uh, this, is, this is a big problem. You can't separate them. When we, as Jesus said, anyone who has seen me, who has seen Jesus, has seen the Father. We have to be able to tie those two together and reconcile them. So then, what are we supposed to do with this third servant's view? Because I think we have to reject it. And there, there's one approach to this that there are a group of theologians called liberation the, theologians. And I, I really appreciate uh, their approach to, to Scripture, but particularly the way they read this parable. They demand that we step away from the power dynamics of capitalism, which influences us so deeply, and reacquaint ourselves with how the gospel would have been received by its original audience. Okay, And this is a good and needed cha challenge. I'm a fan right, of liberation theology. It reminds us to read the Bible in a way that is good news for the poor, the vulnerable, and the pushed away. And it's a good idea to seek out how the gospel was written and was received by those without power or privilege. This would have made up the majority of Christian community in the, in the early church. And it's also the group of people Jesus regularly advocated for and defended. And when we read this parable in light of liberation theology, it kind of turns it on its head. The third servant ends up not being, not being the bad guy, but instead a hero. In bearing the bag of gold, the third servant refuses to comply to the master's pursuit of economic rule by, expo ex by exploiting others. The master in this reading is made out kind of as an evil capitalist. The third servant acts as a prophetic witness against the exploitation of the poor. And the servant's suffering at the end of the parable is a call for the Christian community to bear with the suffering of the weak and the powerless. I love where this lands. I love that it flips the parable. But it's also very hard for me to accept as a reading. I struggle with it because it feels like it's pulled the parable out of its context. And I think it's a legitimate reading. If you read the parable just as its own, without in the verses before and after, it's kind of interesting, right? It could teach us some things. And there's nothing wrong with exploring different ways of reading scripture as long as they point us toward love of God and love of others. It can be a, a fun exercise. But I struggle with this because I love context when we read scripture. And I find this one doesn't tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. It doesn't have enough of the now and not yet. It's kind of good on the now, but not the not yet. And Jesus has a lot to say about laying down power, about loving the poor, right? Loving the poor and pushed away was a favorite topic for Jesus. And laying down power is so much of who Jesus was. He was born, God born human. That's laying down power. Willing to go to the cross, laying down power. And then the whole time in between, he's constantly resisting the temptation of power. 
His whole life was an exercise in laying down power. And I think that these are important ideas in this and important topics. But I don't think they're deriving the driving idea behind this parable. Not in the way that most liberation theologians suggest anyways. See, when we read this parable in its context, we tie this parable to the line, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's hard not to read the king as a God figure. And I struggle to see how this reading shows us the picture of the now and not yet, right? So while I find myself drawn to this way of reading the parable, and maybe some of you do as well, I actually think we can do better. Giving out the bags of gold, the master takes the abilities of each of his servants into careful consideration. The master seems to know each servant deeply. And when he returns from his journey and settles accounts of the servants, the bags of gold almost seem of little importance, right? The master doesn't re remark on their productivity, their reliability, their resourcefulness, or the stewardship of the first two servants, right? What does he point to? He points to their faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he invites them to share in his happiness. The amount of gold given and received upon his return appear inconsequential, right? Five for five, two for two. What are the chances, right, that that would actually line up in a real life situation? If only we had that kind of return, All right? Jesus is kind of just, he's going through the motions, I feel like. He's saying, yes, yes, I come a five for five, two for two, because he's getting to his point. He's getting to the third servant. And when the third servant he com comes in, do we think that he did something wrong by for failing to produce more gold? Does that sound like a Jesus message? I wonder what would have happened if the third servant had invested but lost the original bag of gold. Do you think he still would have thrown, been thrown into the darkness? I personally don't think so. Because the, I don't think this parable is about how many bags of gold a person produces. The master's focus is on faithfulness, not productivity. The failure of the third servant is in his faithlessness before the master, not his lack of production. The judgment is given by the master is on faith or lack of faith in action and not the result of that faith. The servant buries the gold in the ground. Why? It says because he was afraid. Instead of acting out of faithfulness, he acted out of fear. Ultimately, what is an imagined fear of the master? There's an, uh, Robert Capon, an Episcopalian priest, he says this, we spend our lives invoking, invoking upon ourselves imagined necessities, creating, creating God in the image of our own fears, 
And all the while, he is beating us over the head with the balloon of grace and the styrofoam baseball bat of a vindicating judgment. Creating God in the image of our own fears. The failure of the third servant was creating the master in the image of his own fears. And how often do we do this? I know for myself, I find myself doing this. I create God in the image of my fears. I create things that I must do in order to earn his love and appreciation and love in my life. I'm guilty of that. Fear, it's a destructive force, and it's especially, it's especially destructive to faith. It's, it's interesting that as, as Jesus followers, we have actually tried to scare people into following Jesus, right? We've had this turn or burn way of talking about our faith sometimes, but isn't that just so, like, counterproductive? Have fear so that you can have faith, where Jesus is telling us a story that so evidently tells us how they're destructive of one another. And I think when we end up following Jesus out of fear, we end up being people who bury our bags of gold. In John's first letter, which I referenced earlier, in chapter 4, he writes, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. God calls us to be people of love. Jesus calls us to, to a life of faithfulness, not fear. And some of you might be thinking that, doesn't Scripture tell us to fear the Lord? And, and you're right, that, it, that is how it reads. But when you go back to the original language, it's a res- fear and respect, it's awe, it's wonder, it's, he's the creator of the universe. Like, there is good reason to be in awe and have a respect for this being, right? But that's totally different than dread. God is love, and there is absolutely no reason for us to dread in his presence. The master says to the servant, I would have accepted anything, right? Specifically, he said, well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banks so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Jesus is saying he would have accepted a checking account of faithfulness. Just the smallest amount, even a mustard seed. And what I find so compelling is this, that the servant isn't asked to show, the servants aren't asked to show faithfulness blindly. 
right? The master, it says, the master considers each servant. He knows them. He trusts them. And he actually puts his faith in them first. A significant amount of faith, too, if you actually look at the dollar figure. So one bag of gold or one talent is equivalent to about six years' wages. This is one of the things I think I struggle with when, you, when we read this from liberation, because liberation theologists say that, well, the poorest among them, the poorest among them still received a substantial amount of gold. Take what you make in a year and times it by six. It's a healthy sum for many. Right? The master entrusted his servants with an extraordinary sum, between all of them basically a lifetime of wages. And this is actually just like what we've been entrusted with. We have been entrusted with an extraordinarily extraordinary calling, beyond what really actually seems reasonable. God has entrusted humanity with the planet with self-governance, the choice to follow in love, like we are actually given a choice. We've been entrusted with inviting others to follow Jesus. We've been entrusted as children of God, and we're in ultimately ambassadors on earth. We're entrusted with the mission of reconciliation of world and God. That's obscene. Like, you ever wonder why God trusts us? I do. And I don't really have an answer. I just know that he does. And that's kind of the beauty of it. The amount of trust, the amount of faith God has placed in us, in humanity, in the church, is astounding. Especially given our track record. But we love, right? because God first loved us. And I actually think we have faith because God first had faith in us. In the master's response to the first two servants, you hear it, you hear this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come share in your master's happiness. When we respond in faith, we're responding to partner to the partnership God has called us into. And as we have faith in God, so does God continue to have faith in us. I find it a bit unfortunate here that the NIV chose to translate the Greek word chara to happiness instead of what many other versions translate joy. Because happiness always sounds a bit shallow to me. Well, joy, it's something undefinable. You know, happiness is in it, but it's so much more than that. There's a completeness, there's a peace, there's a sense of well-being despite our circumstances that come with joy. The Amplified Bible writes the same verse the same way. His master, this way, that his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful and trustworthy over a little. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in the joy of your master. The kingdom of heaven 
is like living in partnership, in faithful partnership with God. And the kingdom of heaven is sharing in God's joy. Now, I think that's an exciting reading of this parable. And that's where, for me, I've landed that I think this parable is actually about mutual faithfulness between God and humanity. I think it's about entering into the mission of reconciliation where we find and share in the joy of God. Joy that is here in our midst all around us. Ignatius always said, you just need to look. But it's also in the things to come. Joy now and in the future. And I think, of course, we could read this story about the evils of capitalism or read it as a good, about good stewardship. And I think there's interesting takeaways in those. And if you've heard those sermons, I'm not saying they're wrong. But for me, I found that the call, the rejection of fear, the call to faithfulness and the invitation to partnership a lot more compelling, especially when it lands in us experiencing the joy of God in the now and the not yet. And I hope you guys can also hear that invitation to partnership. And that you can begin to understand and live into the promise of joy. Let's pray this morning. Lord God, just help us to live lives of love. <laughs> Give us strength to reject fear and to resist the power it has over us. Give us, give us ears to hear your calling to love and faithfulness. Thank you for including us in your plan even though it doesn't always make sense to us. May we be people of wisdom and understanding in this. Thank you for the joy you've given us. You are so good to us. Amen.